Okay, we are live with Alexander Mercuris and the one and only Professor Jeffrey Sachs, the Center for Sustainable Development, Columbia University. And you have an incredible uh, blog as well, where you post all of your uh, articles. And I will have a link to all of that information in the uh, pinned comments. It's right now in the description box. When the live stream is over, I will have Professor Sachs's information as a pinned comment down below. We have 30 minutes with the great Professor Jeffrey Sachs. Alexander, what, uh, what are we going to talk about? I think G20 is on the agenda today. Let's begin. Absolutely. Can I just say the G20 summit is turning out to be enormously important, in fact, historic. I am surprised. I had thought it would be otherwise. But in fact, we're seeing the movement of events accelerate and deepen. And perhaps we should have listened. I should have listened more carefully to what Professor Sachs has been saying for some time, because an awful lot of things have happened in uh, Delhi. Um, we've had the African Union join something which Professor Sachs said would happen and it has and we also see how the diplomatic initiative is moving increasingly to a wider range of powers we see also some very bitter articles i think inappropriately bitter articles about this appear appearing in the media in the west and lots of emphasis about certain comments in the joint statement about Ukraine, which I think to some extent overshadow the greater story of what is actually taking place at the G20 summit. But uh, Professor Sachs, this is very much the sort of thing that you are very expert on. You follow these events. You, you know about these countries. You've been to India. Tell us what your immediate th feelings, your thoughts about the G20 was. Well, it, it was actually uh, rather remarkable. Uh, why? Uh, because uh, the G20 is the G7 uh, countries, the, that's the U.S. Uh, core, the European Union on the one side, and it's the BRICS on the other side, and uh, a few additional countries, many uh, joining the BRICS now. Uh, and so uh, all the thought was that this was going to be a confrontation over the wording of the uh, condemnation uh, about Ukraine and so forth. And amazingly, uh, we saw India's uh, deft diplomacy. We saw the uh, weight of the world uh, politics shifting towards the emerging economies, towards the BRICS. We saw actually the United States uh, uh, not ready, uh, willing, or able to break uh, a document that Prime Minister Modi wanted because the U.S. is so much hoping that India will somehow side with the U.S., a kind of naive idea. But in any event, uh, we saw the voice of uh, the uh, emerging economies say, we want to have a change of the international economic order. And everybody went along with that and nobody broke the proceedings. And uh, I think it's also just an amazing tribute to, uh, to uh, India's uh, deafness uh, in this as well. Uh, I know the Sherpa quite well, uh, and he said he was engaged in 200 hours of uh, nonstop uh, negotiations to make sure that there wasn't a blockade 
uh, of this communique, and I, I believe him. I take him uh, to uh, the stopwatch word on that. That's a lot of effort, uh, but it shows something really different in the world. Of course, as you mentioned, I, uh, the addition of uh, Africa to the G20, something I've been advocating for a number of years, it's actually a, a pretty big deal for all the reasons uh, that you and we have been discussing in recent weeks with the BRICS and the shifting uh, power in the world. Africa as a union is a big deal for Africa, first of all. But uh, having Africa join uh, the table uh, to what will be the G21 is also a big deal. 1.4 billion people added. Uh, the voice of uh, many of the lower income uh, or uh, lower middle income countries, very important for the restructuring of the world financial system, the world financial architecture. And it happened. And now what is also notable about all of this, uh, just uh, uh, as a first round thought, is uh, the uh, discussions now move on to Brazil. Uh, and Lula. And he's going to carry all of this forward in the double capacity as president of the G20 uh, and as a key member of the BRICS. Uh, so next year, we'll have uh, back to back uh, the BRICS summit in uh, Kazan, uh, Russia, and we'll have the G20 in Brazil. Uh, and I think things uh, are actually going to change. It's just a uh, the, the way of the world right now that we're watching the uh, North Atlantic-led world, as I dis like to describe it, uh, end. We're, we're seeing the end of that. We're really seeing the rise of a multipolar world. The U.S. is uh, kicking and screaming. I think even more than that, uh, the Financial Times is kicking and screaming. They were the ones crying the most about all of this uh, uh, which is kind of uh, funny, but it, it shows uh, British imperial nostalgia, perhaps uh, most of all uh, in their editorial page. And just to wrap up how amazing, who, were the, who defended this declaration is wonderful. Two people, Janet Yellen telling the Financial Times, calm down, this is good. And Sergei Lavrov, <laughs> the, Russia's foreign minister, saying, Terrific outcome. So there you have it. Not, not a bad outcome for a weekend of diplomacy. By the way, on the subject of the British, we're very annoyed about the fact that our prime minister wasn't received by Prime Minister Modi in his residence, that it was done somewhere else. This is all over the media here. Oh, my God. You see. I mean, you know, we're, how are the mighty fallen? Sick transit <laughs> Gloria Mundi. Exactly. Professor Sachs, would you say that this is the moment when the G20, or rather G21, has actually become the G21 as opposed to the G7 plus others. In other words, that we've actually moved away from a, a system where it was just the United States and other countries brought in and they were able to talk and purport to agree with what others have said. But now we actually have the G20 starting to function, or G21 actually starting to function as it was supposed to function, as a real place where things are discussed and things are decided. I mean, is this is this the moment when this organization has finally come into its own? I think uh, we'll know the answer to that at the end of 2025, actually, because what we have now is a place where 
a real discussion happened and uh, perforce uh, a, a communique on that discussion. But we haven't had the change of the world economic architecture. And uh, that's going to happen in one of two ways. It is going to happen. Either it's going to happen in a world that is really divided between essentially the G7 and the BRICS and the world divides. And that could happen, I would say, to the huge detriment of the US and Europe, uh, because they will be the losers in that. Or we will actually have a world that peacefully, uh, fitfully, but still uh, decisively moves to a true multipolar world together. And that is what the G21 would represent. I don't think we're done with this story yet, obviously, because what's in the declaration is actually a lot of good, high-minded things. By the way, everyone can download it. Uh, it's the G20 New Delhi Leaders Declaration. It runs to 34 pages. Unless you're in my business, uh, it, it will absolutely put you to sleep around page three. It's nothing but acronyms. It's nothing but meetings. It's nothing but bureaucracy. I can tell you it matters, though. Uh, it is actually whether poor countries get financing or don't get financing, whether they continue to be poor. It's about whether we do have an international system that is more than uh, just a fig leaf of U.S. power, but is really multilateral institutions. Is the World Bank a U.S. institution with the name world, or is it a world institution? That's absolutely undecided uh, right now. But in the declaration, it is to be a world institution. We shall see. It's tricky. I have to tell you, as, as you know, and I always find it amazing, the World Bank is at 18th and Pennsylvania Avenue. That means it's one block away from the executive office of the president of the United States, two blocks away from the White House and three blocks away from the U.S. Treasury. It was designed as a U.S. owned and operated institution, essentially, though in on paper, it's owned by the world. Now we're at that juncture. Either this institution becomes a world institution or shrivels into basically uselessness. How will it go? The next two or three years are really going to be important in this. And uh, I think India wants to make it a world institution. I, I think China wants to be part of this, but not as a U.S. Uh, institution, but truly as a world institution. I can tell you inside these organizations, which can make a big difference in the world, also the IMF, it is completely fraught along these dividing lines right now. These institutions constantly need to replenish resources and change voting structures. And the, any resemblance to reality means a voting structure in which the U.S. no longer runs the world. And that is the crossroads that we're on exactly now. Because as I understand it, the BRICS at their recent summit in Johannesburg went out of their way to say that they are not seeking to overturn or destroy these institutions, the World Bank and the IMF. They want them reformed, but they're not actually going out of their way to abolish them. And I used to take quite an interest in the World Bank. And it 
I remember it once doing quite a lot of interesting or so it seemed to me and useful things. I don't hear about it so much anymore. But anyway. Well, but that, interestingly, by the way, uh, it did. It was purged. It became an institution mm. of uh, the neocons in, in a real way. Uh, and uh, it also uh, dramatically uh, was reduced in scale compared to any relevant uh, amounts of uh, capital flows or financing needs. And this is why the question is, uh, is this institution just going to die away as a, uh, a legacy institution of post-World War II? Or is it going to be there to finance uh, actually a kind of world that I would really like to see where there is a, an end of poverty and a modernization of infrastructure around the world. And it could play a very constructive role in that, but it needs a, a different governance structure and more financial heft. Hmm. Can I just come back to India and India's role? Because of course, India was the host. India is now seen by many people as the sort of informal leader of the global south countries at least that's how it's represented here in the west they've shown extreme great skill in handling the diplomacy around the summit and i think there's no doubt about that but in a one of our programs fairly recently and i've been thinking about this more in, in the context of this meeting you've been speaking you spoke about the fact that india and china might start finally working towards resolving their differences. And there was a meeting between Modi and Xi Jinping in Johannesburg. And of course, Xi Jinping didn't come to this summit. And people saw this as a, somehow him acting against Prime Minister Modi, which I don't think it was actually. But in fact, and in practice, both in Johannesburg and here in Delhi, the Chinese and the Indians seemed to be able to work together quite well. Was that your impression? And is it more likely now that they will start working towards sorting out their differences? Because that's my impression, certainly. I, on, on the whole, I think that India and China will have uh, normal uh, and in uh, many areas, very good relations. But I uh, India is a world power and a civilization onto itself. China is a world power and a civilization onto itself. Russia is a world power and a civilization onto itself. Uh, and uh, these are distinct cultures. Uh, and uh, though they will be friendly and supportive in some areas, uh, they will absolutely balance each other in other areas. That's what a multipolar world is. It is not a, a tight alliance that we're likely to see unless some horrific global events take place in which sides are really taken. But with India and China, there's actually every reason for a lot of cooperation on a lot of things. And the division is lines in the uh, high Himalayas. Uh, and uh, contested borders. This is not at the core of the interests or security stakes of either country. So one would think that pragmatically, because those are both very pragmatic leaders uh, and uh, countries that have a lot of things they want to get done over the coming years, 
they'll find a way to really tamp that down because this is not a fundamental issue. Neither country threatens each, uh, the other in any fundamental way whatsoever, but they have a lot of interests. They have a lot of interests in the international financial architecture and the global governance structures. I would like to see China champion India as a, a permanent member of the Security Council, for example. This would be a good thing for and a wise thing for China to do in China's interest in building a multipolar world. You could say, why would China let in uh, uh, a powerful peer potential competitor? And the answer is because China doesn't want a U.S. monolithic or hegemonic world. China wants a, a multipolar world. And India is the single obvious new member of the U.N. Security Council by any standard. When you make the lists by different criteria, India's the giant 1.4 billion people, nuclear power, uh, a fast rising economy, very sophisticated country. The one obvious country that's not at the uh, front table of the U.N. Security Council. So I I'd find it hard to believe, uh, given my own experience with the Chinese pragmatism during the last 40 years, uh, that China and India won't find a way to really cooperate on a lot of important things. Of course, the U.S. and its uh, endless dreams thinks that India is going to be part of the U.S. alliance. They forget, by the way, that India was and Britain may forget also, but it should be re reminded that uh, Britain colonized India. It was pretty painful uh, imperial rule, not so much appreciated or beloved in retrospect. And um, India is not going to fall into the U.S. camp under any circumstances, especially if China just uh, behaves sensibly, which it, uh, which it typically does, very typically does. I mean, rising great powers do not subordinate themselves to other great powers. It's not something that happens. And the whole point about the Security Council is that it's supposed to bring together the great powers. So I mean, it, the fact that India is one is a reason to make it a member. That's it, correct. It, otherwise, it's not, a, it's not complete. Now, what about the other country that we, we mentioned, the fact that Brazil is coming after India? Because... Again, speaking from you know somebody born in the 1960s, I can remember a lot of people talking then about Brazil as a rising country. And it has never seemed to quite happen, but it seems we seem to be closer to that point with Brazil than we've ever been before, perhaps, that things are beginning to come together very slowly. It's one step forward or two steps forward, one step back, but... Are things coming together in Brazil, too? Because it's showing increasing sophistication in its diplomacy. Uh, of course, uh, the ultimate cliche of Brazil, the country of the future and always will be uh, the great uh, joke. But the fact of the matter is uh, Brazil is a very sophisticated society with a very large economy. Uh, President Lula happens to be at a personal and political level, extraordinarily charming and capable uh, and uh, very clear eyed about the world. I happen to love the guy. I just think he's a, a terrific president. And so I'm very happy that he'll be president of the G20 in the coming year. And they will host the climate conference COP30 uh, in the following year. And 
what we're seeing in Brazil during this past year is a lot of diplomatic progress, a lot of very interesting diplomatic progress. First, bringing South America, which is extremely uh, complicated environment. It's a multiracial, multiethnic, highly divided societies because of it being a conquest continent uh, of the Europeans, after all, and it left a very complicated legacy. But Lula is bringing together South America. That's number one. Second, Brazil has a lot of technology, uh, especially in food production, uh, in biotech, that is what the world is going to need in the coming years. Uh, Brazil has a very clean energy grid, which is going to make it extremely attractive for lots of investment. It's going to perhaps be the first major economy in the world that is uh, essentially all zero carbon uh, powered. Uh, so I see Brazil having tremendous uh, potential and dynamism under uh, President Lula, both on the diplomatic side and on the economic side. And I was with their economic team uh, just the week before the G20, thinking about the G20 to come mm -hmm. after India. And I, I was pretty taken with uh, what, what they're up to. I, I think that uh, we're going to hear this week when uh, the so-called uh, high-level debate of the UN General Assembly opens uh, actually a week from tomorrow, President Lula, as president of Brazil, by tradition, will be the first speaker uh, at the podium at the UN General Assembly. I'd be uh, pretty confident he's going to give an extremely strong message of uh, leadership and of reform of the global system. And I think Brazil is in a strong position to help pull that off. One other interesting initiative, by the way, that uh, I've been dealing with Brazil on is they have gotten together the rainforest countries of the world because, of course, they're uh, the steward of the world's largest rainforest, the Amazon Basin. Uh, and they've gotten together with Indonesia, another very significant regional power, of course, mm -hmm. and with the uh, DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, to make the equatorial belt of the rainforest countries united in conservation, in sustainable development, in uh, biotech and so forth. It's a very interesting development, something quite real and something that Brazil is taking the lead on. I mean, the other thing that was very interesting for me at the G20 is that to, to, I, to my best of my understanding, the Global South countries acted together. They, 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 I won't say that they formed a block because that was, would certainly be wrong but they made very clear that they have shared views. They may have differences between each other, but that they have shared views about global governance, about what the priorities of the world should be. They made it very clear that they wanted this particular declaration. They would not have been happy if the United States, as it sort of suggested at one time, would walk away and not agree to a declaration at all. And the fact that they acted like that appears to have had an effect on the United States and on the other G7 states that they said, we can't risk this happening. We can't have the global South you know, angry with us. We, we, can't, we can't allow that to happen. Uh, and that was one of the reasons why on this one issue, which is Ukraine, which is that they were trying to make it all about Ukraine. 
they eventually had to back off. Was that your impression also? Yeah, just uh, two quick points on that. You know, first, if you add the population of the US, Canada, European Union, UK, Japan, Korea, Australia, New Zealand, you get to uh, certainly around a billion, uh, maybe a little bit uh, above. I was going to do the numbers before we got on, didn't have the time to uh, do the exact sum. But 12% of the world population. So when we say uh, that they're afraid of uh, the global south or whatever term one wants, I don't love that term, by the way, because yeah. geographically, it's not the South. <laughs> geographically, it's, it's most of the world, including most of the North, uh, most of Eurasia. But in any event, it's the vast majority of the world population do that does not play the game of the United States, UK, and Europe. And I'm afraid that the U.S., just doesn't understand this. Mm -hmm. Something's gone so haywire in our education system that even, you know, they don't get it in Washington that there's a much, much, much larger world out there than they imagine. But the second point I think is really notable in what you say, the diplomacy is very high quality in India, in Brazil, uh, in South Africa, uh, in Indonesia, uh, in uh, a number of countries, in China, real diplomacy. What does diplomacy mean? It means you know your brief. It means you know the brief of your counterpart. It means you're ready to sit down on an equal basis and actually discuss issues substantively. I can tell you I've never seen weaker diplomacy in Washington or London, or Brussels, it, I can't even call it diplomacy, or in Berlin, it's unbelievable. What is diplomacy? It's bad-mouthing, it's foul-mouthed, it's ignorance, it's a lack of understanding of the perspective of others, and it's bullying and arrogance that they think can somehow work. And what we're clearly seeing in the world right now is it doesn't work. It's over. You can't just bully and bluff your way through this. And the United States better train some diplomats, not foul-mouthed insulters of others. But that's what we've seen. We've forgotten the most basic skills of diplomacy in, in the last 20 years. Because it's all been, if you don't like the other country, you don't have to talk to them. You just do regime change operation. And so that's the opposite of diplomacy. So when you say how they work together and they did work together, and by the way, the Indian Sherpa gave a long account of how they worked together, that was just not block formation. It was very skilled, very intelligent, very well-trained, very experienced people talking with each other like adults. And uh, the, the one thing I'm still longing for in Washington is some adult behavior. Not, by the way, octogenarian, non-compassmentist behavior. Just adult behavior would be nice. Yeah. Professor Sachs, we're almost at the end. 
about Africa quickly. Yes. Are we, should we be optimistic about Africa? I can remember Tony Blair telling us in Glen Eagles that he was going to solve the problems of Africa. Are the Africans about to solve their own problems? Is there a likelihood, a possibility of that? Now they seem to be getting their act together. They're in the G20, they're G21. Any thoughts? The imperial powers, especially in uh, the, the Congress of Berlin in uh, uh, in. Uh, 1885 divided Africa. Uh, it ended up as 55 countries. If it were one union, it would be the same population as India, the same population as China. If they unite, they will absolutely succeed. And what we'll see is Africa achieving 7 to 10% uh, cumulative growth year by year in the next 40 years, mm. like China did from 1980 to 2020, like India is doing from 2000 to 2040, Africa will be on the same path with a 20-year delay, I would say, 20-year starting point. But what we're going to see is a huge transformation if the Africans do what they really look like they're doing right now, and that is uniting, because as one continental economy that uh, defends its interests and pursues its interests together uh, in global uh, venues and global leadership, it's going to be a very different and very positive world. Professor Sachs, I think we'll stop now because I, we're up to a hard stop. But can I just say thank you again for coming and joining us and giving us your time on this busy day. Thank you very much. Always a great pleasure with you guys. Thanks. Thanks thank so much. You very take much. Take, take you care to everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All of Professor Sachs' information is in the description box down below, and I will have it, have it as a pinned comment. Alexander, I think we can handle the, the questions yeah. for Professor well, Sachs. I think you can, you can pinch, pinch hit, as we say in, uh, in, baseball, in baseball terms. But uh, let's, let's answer the questions, because we have a lot of good questions. You up for it? Yep. All right. Let's do it. Helena, thanks for joining the Durant community. Jeff, thanks for joining. Jeff's channel, thanks for joining the Durant community. Um, Death Dealer says, actually, wait a minute, Death Dealer. I think I have your first question here. Yes. Will the attackers be used to threaten or attack Russia or just be used on a Crimean bridge? And then Death Dealer says, I actually meant to put the not... Sorry, but I think we understand the question. Yes. Will the attackers be used to threaten or attack Russia or just be used on the Crimean bridge? I don't know what the Ukrainians are going to do with them, but they will certainly use them against the Crimean bridge. Whether they plan to go and attack Russia itself, I doubt these things have the range for that. If we're talking about pre-Russia within its pre-2014 borders, but I would have thought the Crimean bridge is an obvious target. And I think that is the primary purpose of what these things will be used for. Okay. Let's see here. Uh, Lilibet, welcome to the Drank community. Uh, this one would have been a good one for Professor Sachs, but I think you can handle this one, Alexander, from Rocky Lux. Professor Sachs, when government debts continuously expand at a greater rate than GDP growth, what are its consequences? And does high inflation your excessive government debt levels? If not, what can correct U.S. debt levels? 
that's a huge question, actually, uh, and one that uh, it probably would require an economist. Yeah, to kind of we had we, we had to do a hard stop for Professor Sachs. I know, but I, I, will, but I will. I will. What do you think? I will try to the best give, give, give of my ability to answer. Now, I would have said as a mathematical, uh, as a simple mathematical point, you cannot go on increasing debt faster than your GDP indefinitely. There will come a point when that is by definition, mathematically, if you like, unsustainable. It will also, at some point, distort, and I think it's we've long passed that point, by the way, it will also distort your economy so that a lot of what you think is GDP is actually debt. And I think we are well past that point in the West, by the way. So I, I think that debt, when it gets completely out of control to the extent that we've actually already seen in the West, it, it, it becomes dangerous and bad. It becomes like a cancer inside the economy. Now, using high inflation to cure debt, I suppose in theory it is a cure, but I would say that it's probably a cure worse than the disease. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's my own feeling about this. It's in effect, taxing the vast majority, about taxing everybody to pay debts which might be uh, uh, affecting the few. And I think it'd be a disastrous way to actually deal with debt. And, you know, if you've lived through high inflation experiences, as I have done, you would know that it's not something you want to see as a way out. Now, what can you do about correcting debt? Now, here, I will say I'm very attracted to the thoughts of another economist, which is Michael Hudson, which is that you recognize that if some debt is becoming excessive and burdensome and impossible to pay, then you write it off. <laughs> now, that's nothing new. I mean, you, there are things you need to do if you write debt off. There might be, you know, you're, you're talking about, in effect, a bankruptcy or default situation. But countries have done that in the past and they've survived and they've come through. And then you bring in new management teams and you run things properly. That is what I think should have happened in Greece after the 2008 crisis. But of course, it wasn't done. I don't mean this isn't, you know, you just write it off and you leave it at that and you start all over again. You have to reform the structures you have to you know change things but unless you write the debt off every other solution is going to result in more harm and more damage yeah that's a great answer hopefully professor Sachs, uh if he's watching the the yeah. rest of this video later on hopefully he'll address this question it's a good question yeah uh elza says in joe biden's plan for the g20 to fill a hole left by Putin and Xi, and to get others to align with him, the weakest link was Joe Biden himself. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is completely correct, because Professor Sachs was talking about diplomacy. Do you associate diplomacy with the name Joe Biden? Because I certainly don't. Look how rude he is about people. I mean, you know, that's not how you conduct diplomacy. And of course, you're absolutely, Elsie, you're absolutely right. He was the weakest link in the chain, not that the others were any stronger. I mean, you know, we've got a foreign minister like Annalena Baerbock there. 
She's not going to impress anybody, but at least she's not the president of the United States. He is the president of the United States, and he's hopeless at diplomacy. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't like doing it, and he puts everybody off. Very unlikable guy. Zariel says, ask Professor Sachs about Bill Browder and the stolen IMF funds for Russia, along with Kazyanov, and who killed Edmund Safra? Lots of very interesting questions there. I'm, I'm going to... Uh, um, declare an interest here. Andrei Nekrasov, who made the film about the Magnitsky affair and who deals a lot with Bill Browder, is a close personal friend of mine. <laughs> just, just, just saying. So, I mean, I know him very, very, very well. And obviously that means that I have a certain perspective on Bill Browder that derives to some extent from this. This is a huge topic and a very interesting topic. I think the best advice I can give uh, and this is separate from Professor Sachs's opinions about this matter, which I don't know. But the best advice I can give is to go to the Internet, find that film about the Magnitsky affair, which was made by Nikrasov, and see it for yourself and form your own views. Mine are clearly made up, but, you know, search it out and find it and you'll come to your own views. Jerry says, thank you for your hard work and brilliant guests. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jonas O says off topic answer if you like has your work affected you in a negative way in some way cancelled or something like that I would say absolutely the opposite in my case <laughs> it's given me a certain far from being cancelled I'm almost embarrassed actually by the amount of attention that I've received and um, um, I, I have to say that overall I, I feel the enormous support of the community the Duran community and I am really grateful for it yeah, agree. Oh, Ocox says, thanks for having Professor Sachs on again. Ricardo Alfonso, thank you for that. Orlando says, you guys do great work. A breath of fresh air in a stale room. World Bank and IMF perpetuate poverty. And the, in their present form, absolutely. I remember once upon a time, it used to, the World Bank used to churn out all kinds of reports and for my sins, I used to read them. And some of them I found very interesting and very, very informative. And slowly you saw that all ebb away. And I haven't had anything interesting from the World Bank for a long time. I'm not going to even start talking about the IMF, which, well, <laughs> I mean, we, we know it very well in Greece, but in lots of other places they know it too. So I'm going to start about, start about the IMF. But um, certainly... As these institutions exist today, you are absolutely right. I think the IMF is a lost cause. The, the World Bank, well, I'd like to think you, could get, you can bring it back. I wonder whether you can really. And why, why would they want to? Why would the other countries in the world outside the West want to bring it back? But anyway, we'll see. Claudia says, so appreciative for all your insights and informative channel. Thank you, Claudia. Life of Brian says, given the fiasco of the governor of New Mexico regarding guns, do you anticipate the admin state overextending and hence losing its battles in domestic policy as it has lately in foreign policy? But I'm not going to want, I think this is actually an answer, a question you can answer better than me, Alex, because you're probably following this more closely than you may be. I've, I've seen the interview. I don't know if you've seen the interview, the statement from the... Mm -hmm. I think she's the the, the governor of, of New yeah. Mexico. New Mexico, I believe. I yeah, I, I I've not really gone deep into into this story. 
I don't know. You, you, well, you I mean, they are, I mean, th- th- this is again a, a perfect Robert Barnes yes. topic, if I may say so. And he's perhaps the best person to discuss all of this. I, I think he covered this. Right. I think he covered yeah. this in the live stream with Viva Fry that they did, did. Uh, yesterday. I'm, I'm not I sure, but I think they covered this. But he's this is this is uh, for Robert for, for sure. Robert more than for us. Yeah. But can I just say about the uh, the risk of them losing their well, risk the I would say the hope that they will overextend and lose their domestic battles. I think ultimately that is exactly what will happen. The question again is how much damage are they doing in the meantime? We've already done programs about the way in which they've gone past the law. They've gone past the constitution itself. More and more people are saying it. And it looks like they're doing this again and that they're losing sight of due process and due process arguments and constitutional safeguards and those kind of things. And I suspect that this Mexico, New Mexico affair with the guns is, I mean, it seems to me that it's all connected with all of that. Yeah. Sparky says was skeptical of Lula because I thought he was captured by U.S. globalists, but I've been pleased with him so far. Me too. Well said, Sparky. Uh, Stan says, AGW is a scam. Does it matter? Clean tech is here. That's Neil M. Thank you for joining the Duran community. Mobius Zero says, is war with China simply fate, destiny at this point? Is the U.S. and China going to end up killing, nuking each other after all? I saw a really disturbing piece by, I think it was Larry Johnson. He had a meeting with one of his friends in, might not have been, I, I can't remember who it was, that he had a meeting with, no, it was, it was Professor Syracuse, actually with one of his contacts in Washington. And they were talking about apparently a conflict with China, the hawks, as he puts it, the neocons, as we would say, um, in Washington. For them, it's absolutely the priority. They're decided on it. That's what they're heading towards. I don't think it's fate and I don't think it's destiny. I think it is entirely human action. What human beings decide to do other human beings can stop whether we will stop it whether it will be stopped in the united states i don't know but i hope it will be because that would be a calamity beyond all others yeah sparky says the only way russia should trust any peace deal with the west is if it's guaranteed by two of these three countries india china brazil france and germany won't cut it anymore (laughs) Uh, well i think you're right I don't think they will trust the West, and I don't think the West will accept, for the moment, any peace agreement guaranteed by India, China, and Brazil. I mean, it's as simple as that. So that that already puts it in an enormously uh, problematic territory because the West will never, ever accept a situation where it's put on the same level as these other countries, powerful though they are. Yeah. Uh, John says it will take Russia and China leaving the UN to get India and Brazil added to the Security Council. No, I don't agree. I mean, Russia supports India joining the Security Council. China has at times shown some doubt about this. The big opponent, if you must know, to India joining the Security Council is, you guess it, it's Britain. British aren't keen. (laughs) It's not surprising because, of course, if India joins the Security Council, well, Britain's position starts to be overshadowed by its former colony. So the British not really pleased about it. Mobius Zero says, when war comes to East Asia, will China and North Korea turn Japan and South Korea into failed states, which 
they will have to invade to keep from becoming terrorist puppets. I mean, these are the nightmare scenarios, the apocalyptic scenarios, which one day we might face, but let's hope we never do. And I really don't want to speculate about them. It's clear that there are now dividing lines in the Northeast Pacific. The United States is trying to create this alliance between Japan and South Korea and the United States itself to confront China. We see Russia and North Korea being drawn in on the other side. I hope it doesn't come to the kind of outcomes that you say, but um, we can see that the battle lines are already being drawn. Controlled Demolition says, thank you, Jeffrey Sachs and the Duran. HWW says, what does Professor Sachs and Alexander think of the India-Middle East-Europe corridor? Is it really going to happen? That's that's a good question. I'm interested about that as well. Do you think this is really going <laughs> so, to happen? I, I can't speak for Professor Sachs, so let's, let me make this very clear. If this happens, well, why object to it? Well, why say, first of all, that it would be a bad thing if it happens? It's another trade corridor. More trade corridors that there are, the better they are. But, of course, the point about this is it's really another attempt to try and create an alternative to the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative. And there's been many of those. I mean, I don't know whether people remember, just one or two or three G7 summits ago, I think it was the first one, actually, that Biden presided over. There was going to be this big alternative. The G7 came up with this big alternative plan for an alternative to the Belt and Road Initiative. And all kinds of money were put together and all kinds of things happened. We never heard of it again. And does anybody really believe this is going to happen? The United States, which is the sponsor of this project, has problems with its own infrastructure. Oh, I was going to say. I mean, is it really going to create infrastructure in these places? It should invest in its own infrastructure yeah. first. Absolutely. Uh, Mobius Zero says, I'm literally starting to wonder whether China and Japan are going to kill each other. War with China seems to be destiny, and Japan seems to be quite happy to die for the U.S. Is China going to have to go Hitler genocide? Now, I can, I, again, I hope that we don't get to these points. And I should say that if... If uh, the country to worry about here is Japan, uh, and I think that Japan once more needs to start pursuing an independent foreign policy more based upon its own interests. And I think this is a very pressing and important topic, which we might very well be discussing with Professor Sachs again. Can I just say that? But I hope we don't get to this because the outcome would be a disaster. And I can't conceive that anybody in China, for example, would want to resort to those kind of methods. I think uh, Mobius Zero is, is, is worried. Is yeah, he is worried. And I think yeah. we are worried. And there's every good reason to be worried. But let's work to try and prevent these terrible things taking place. Yeah. Michael, thank you for that super sticker. Uh, Toby says, free esoteric PDF book, The World Teacher for All Humanity by Benjamin Krem. Profound insight in simple terms. Seek truth, find understanding and hope. Okay, good. I mean, I, I, I'm not familiar with the book, but thanks for letting us know. Uh, Small Town Voice says, it is wonderful to have you guys sorting things 
for us in this very interesting time. Thank you. Well, those are kind words. I know about sorting out, but anyway, we tried to discuss okay. things. Ricardo says, if they use Obama math, then everything will be okay. Of course. I guess in reference After all, to he was the great, he was the great uh, 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 mathematician. He got everything. Yeah. He, he was able to find everything out exactly right. Mobius Sierra says again, I wonder if Chinese would love to kill Japanese. No, they would not. They're, here I can actually speak. I mean, there is men, major, major tensions between China and Japan. Um, I can't speak for Japan. I used to have lots of contacts with people from Japan, Japanese business, business people. But that was a long time ago. In those days, all the Japanese I knew had a horror of war. They, many of them had lived through the Second World War and did not want to go there again. I can't speak for today's Japan, but in China, which I have visited, well, six years ago, absolutely people do not want war, certainly not with Japan. That was my clear understanding of it. Tensions exist, yes, but they're not looking for war with Japan. Tom, somebody says, expand the U.S. Security Council to seven, remove U.K., France. They are Western redundant with U.S., Russia, China, add India, Brazil, African Union, Indonesia, or a Middle East nation for a Muslim representation. Well, I've, I've actually I've actually seen it suggested that for the uh, um, Arab world, the Muslim world, um, it, bring in the Arab League. I mean, you know, African Union, the Arab League as well. Um, I'm going to say something. I think that there might just be a case for, for leaving France on the Security Council. It has had an independent foreign policy before. Perhaps it might again. I think in Britain's case, I'm going to say this, if Britain lost its seat on the Security Council, it would be a good thing for Britain. It would put aside once and for all this illusion that we're still a great power, and that is an illusion we need to do away with so that we can focus on our pressing domestic problems. Sophisticated Caveman says, will we ever see the Greeks or other South European countries, Serb, Bulgars, join the BRICS? Seems to be some cultural similarities. Well, In Serbia, it's been floated. Serbia, it's been suggested, yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Sleepy Crane says, will an intervention in Mexico as a crackdown on the drug trade, uh, will it be an easier target for the MIC after Ukraine failure? I think it'd be a terrible mistake. And that's my own personal view. And Space Cake says, good evening. I think as long as we won't be able to leave this neoliberal capitalism, we get less democratically elected governments in the West, to your opinion. I think we all agree. <laughs> yeah, I'll agree with that. And Emil913 from Locals, thank you for that. Uh, super chat. And... Chief Bumaki says, why would Sachs even mention carbon as if anything other than a political charlatan scam? Well, I mean, he's he's talking about the Brazil's policies. I don't think he sees it in those terms. Yeah. OK, Alexander, that was a great live stream with the one and only Professor Sachs. Let me see if we got all the questions. I think we did. Final thoughts, and we'll wrap this one well, up. Well, a, a very optimistic and hopeful live stream. I just wanted to say also that I'm astonished by the outcome of the G20. I thought it was going to end in a division and that it was about to end and it was losing its relevance, and it turns out it hasn't. And once again, we see how 
effective Indian diplomacy is. Yeah, very effective. All right. Thank you, everybody, for joining us on this Monday live stream. Thank you to our amazing moderators. As always, a big thank you to, to everyone that's helping us out on the chat. Thank you to everyone that watched us on Rockfin, Odyssey, Rumble, Locals, and YouTube. Hmm. And maybe Twitter. Does Twitter have live streaming? I don't think so. Maybe one day Twitter as well. We'll see. All right, uh, Alexander, let's call it a, an evening. We'll call it an evening. All right. Take care, everybody. <laughs>